Welcome to Leadership Conversations, a podcast by the Sustainability Board Report. Join us as we engage in conversations with business and civil society leaders, educators and advisors discussing the role of sustainable leadership in today's world. The Sustainability Board Report is an independent, not-for-profit project. We aim to showcase different dimensions of sustainable business leadership and corporate governance. We publish reports to help individual leaders, organizations and investors to understand the changing landscape of environmental, social and governance factors. Welcome to a new episode of Leadership Conversations. My name is Frederick Otto from the Sustainability Board Report and I'm here as always with Helena Gutenstotter. Today we feature James Purcell. James is the Group Head of Sustainable Frameworks for Credit Suisse and he is also the co-author of a new book called Sustainable Investing in Practice. Helena, you are a sustainability specialist working for an asset manager in your day job. It must have been quite interesting hearing from one of your peers. Yeah, it's interesting because, of course, when you're doing it day-to-day, there are certain things that I'm familiar with. But I think in this conversation, he really gives a good insight into sustainable finance from his perspective. And he also shares insights from his new book that you mentioned. I think the book is more of a pragmatic approach, as he said, and explaining sort of what's working, what's not working, not taking an extremely pro or extremely against point. Something that, of course, we that work in sustainable finance are very aware of. There's a lot of different standards, frameworks, data, and he goes into that, which I think will be interesting for anyone that's facing those challenges. May that be ESG specialists or even business leaders. And I think one thing that I really took away from this and can relate to is that at least start with the data that's material to your business. Because at this point, ESG and kind of working in sustainable finance is all about the data, gathering it. And it can become too much at points. So I think that's a good advice. And he kind of goes a bit further into that. Um, we also hear about how it works and how it has worked for him, about aligning incentives between different units within finance. I think it's really interesting. Um, you and him discuss about the private and public markets. He goes into saying that private markets have really potential to create some real world impact but they don't really have necessarily the same requirements upon them in terms of reporting and information sharing. So that's something that I think is going to be becoming more important. And he mentions that sustainable finance is making intangible things tangible. So that's a pretty interesting way to frame it. But yeah, I don't want to ramble on too much, but what was it that you took away, Freddie? I must say I really liked how pragmatic James is as you said he keeps emotions out of this so to speak he's really trying to bring in a clear narrative to sustainable finance and investing and quite liked how uh, straight to the point he is and how he is trying to explain probably somewhat complex concepts in a mass compatible way for people to not get bogged down too much with terminology let's go straight into the episode Welcome to a new episode of Leadership Conversations. Today we feature James Purcell. James is an author, educator, and expert in sustainable finance and investing. He is the group head of Sustainable Frameworks at Credit Suisse, where he coordinates the firm's approach to sustainable investing and lending. Previously, James headed up the Sustainable Thematic and Impact Investing Division at Quintet Private Bank, 
and was a managing director at UBS and global head of sustainable and impact investments. He is a visiting lecturer in sustainable finance at the ESCP Business School, and he is also the co-author of the new book, Sustainable Investing in Practice, which he co-wrote with his friend and mentor, Simon Smiles, and is available to purchase now. James, so glad to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Ah, it's great to be here. Thank you. James, I've just given the shortest of overviews about yourself. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about you and the work that you focus on? Absolutely. So starting with the work, I look after my firm's approach to sustainable investing and financing. When we think about any framework which governs any activity, particularly an investment or sustainable activity, those frameworks can either be enabling or they can be detrimental to the business. When these things work well, they can provide clarity to people. It can provide a degree of alignment across geographies and across divisions. Or, of course, these things can be somewhat bureaucratic. They can take up people's time and they can suck energy. So my role is really to make sure that when we build our approaches to sustainable investing and sustainable finance, uh, when we look at how we can act as a single firm in the markets, that we are facilitating, that we are creating additional value and that we are enabling our colleagues all around the globe. And that ultimately means trying to create something that is credible and commercial and can help us drive both sustainable finance and investing in line with what our clients are, are asking for. James, sustainable finance has been a term that has been widely used over the last few years, I would say, but has more recently come under scrutiny for some greenwashing scandals that we have been seeing, the product offering being opaque at times. Is the public losing confidence and does it still matter and why? So first of all, I think terminology can often get in the way. And when we brand things as sustainable finance or we use acronyms like ESG, it can often make this seem like it's something distinct from all other forms of finance and indeed our everyday life. So if we think about finance in its simplest form, what is finance and what do banks do? They connect those who have capital with those who need capital. Whether that's bonds, loans, a mortgage, a credit card, it's all connecting those two parties, one that has capital and one that needs capital. And thus, when we think about it, everything in our economy, every company, every building is ultimately underpinned one way or another by the financial system and by finance. And therefore, when we talk about sustainable finance, we're not talking about anything discreet, anything different to that. We're just talking about the idea that when you provide this finance to the real economy, it's reasonable to want to do those transactions in the most responsible way. It's quite possible that you want to do those transactions in a way that benefits people and planet. And that's really why it matters, because ultimately everything is a form of finance and sustainable finance is merely undertaking those activities with a little bit of a wider lens, thinking about stakeholders, thinking about what are the best outcomes for all people. So let me ask you a follow-up question then. Who are you serving exactly? And where I want to get to, I suppose, is what is the impact of sustainable finance to pensioners? What is the impact to money managers? What is the impact to society in general? So I think ultimately the beneficiary has to be 
your last point, society in general. That's what we have to aspire to, which is when we look outside the window at the real economy, all of that is built by finance. And thus we have the opportunity and the power to shape what's outside the window. Do we see polluting factories? Do we see companies that are exploiting their workforces? Or do we see a more positive view outside our window? So at the end of the day, our ultimate beneficiary is the everyday person. It is the everyday person who is living in this world, trying to make ends meet and trying to do the best they can. Along that value chain, of course, we do have other people who would perhaps be termed as clients. And those clients are people who are making those investments, who are providing the capital in order to create the world outside our window. And that can be pension funds, of course. It can be wealthy individuals. And there we have a responsibility to make sure that we are protecting and using that wealth in an efficient, credible way. So to my mind, who's the ultimate person that we're looking out for? It's society as a whole. But on that journey, on that pathway, we need to make sure that we're using finance in a way that protects people's capital and allows it to grow and compound over time. Understood. Let's talk about your new book that you have co-authored with Simon Smiles, who was the chief investment officer for ultra high net worth clients at UBS. It's called Sustainable Investing in Practice. And the first question that I like to ask authors is, what made you want to write this book in the first place? And then, of course, who is it for and what are you hoping to achieve? So we wanted to write the book because we saw that the way that people were thinking about sustainable investing and sustainable finance was becoming increasingly polarized. On the one side, we had these advocates who work within the same community that Simon and I did, and they uh, sometimes go a little bit to the holier-than-thou type end of the spectrum. They believe that sustainability is always right, always good. And they aim for ever higher, uh, more aggressive standards in the way that people do business and the way that people invest, provide finance. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we've got people who are, I guess, deniers in some ways. They deny that climate change is occurring. They have demonized the concepts of sustainability or ESG. We now see in certain corners of the US political system, it's somehow become a bogeyman for many, many people. And that polarization is frankly not very helpful because neither side of that debate is really taking into account the nuances of what's going on. And by advocating extreme positions, very rarely does that lead to a constructive conversation and or progress being made. So what Simon and I wanted to do was take something that was rather more um, pragmatic, something that was down the middle, perhaps, uh, looking at what works and what doesn't work with a really honest view on it. It may not be as sensational as the two polarized points of view, but it is the reality of what's going on. It is the in practice, if you will. Simon and I, when we were together at UBS, we built what was arguably the most successful sustainable investing franchise that has been built for that, for the very large wealth management business. And thus we've seen firsthand, what are the trade-offs? What are the compromises you have to make? When does certain activities prosper and when do they fail? And thus, that's really why we wanted to write the book, to make sure that there was a voice of moderation inside of the debate. In terms of who's it for, I guess it is, of course, for the sustainability community itself. I think there's definitely a portion of the community we'd probably upset 
by being a little bit more pragmatic and a little bit less dogmatic than some of the positions that, that some people in the community uh, advocate. I'd say it's also for the finance community in general, particularly the finance community who may misunderstand the space, who may have only ever seen the more zealous side of sustainable investing. And thus, it's perhaps a good bridge between those different parties. And of course, we'd love to make sure that this book is accessible for those of a younger generation of students, so to speak. And thus, the way we've written it, it's full of anecdotes, it's full of analogies to real life. Uh, we've tried to make what can be a technical topic as accessible as possible. And that's in part to try and widen that audience and allow it to be digested and understood by the broadest range of people possible. I was lucky enough to get a copy up front, particularly like the interviews with some very exciting people in the book. So definitely I recommend everybody who's interested to get that. We'll talk a little bit more about the book just in a second, but I actually have a follow-up question for you. You were just saying that the sustainable finance practice that you built with your friend and colleague, Simon at UBS, was arguably one of the most successful. What made it so successful? So I think what made it so successful is we acknowledged that there are different types of investors who care about different things. And broadly speaking, it falls into three categories. There are those that are vehemently opposed to sustainable investing, those that are very passionate about sustainable investing, and then what we refer to in the book as the mass middle, i.e. people who will be perfectly happy to invest their money in this manner if the returns are acceptable, if the narrative is compelling, if the stories are exciting and interesting and draw them in. And what many people in the sustainable investing industry do is they speak in a little bit of an echo chamber. They target the true believers like themselves. And what we found is those two ends of the spectrum are actually really quite small in terms of how large they are of the general population in the region of 10 to 20% at each bookend. And thus, the secret to achieving scale in sustainable investing is not to solely focus on the true believers, so to speak, but to actually go after the mass middle, to create a product that has a degree of familiarity that isn't asking someone to learn a new language or various sustainable investing terminology, that isn't asking them to give up returns, that isn't asking them to have to digest a lot of new concepts. And thus, the success that we had there was really about that. It was creating something that on the one hand was familiar, but on the other was highly innovative and quite impactful. Thanks for that explanation. Makes sense. And I feel like I've understood it now as well. <laughs> so now talking about particular areas in the book that I have found very interesting and picked out two excerpts. I want to start with chapter two, which talks about sustainable data and ESG ratings. We spent a lot of time around these here at the Sustainability Board Report. And you discuss in the chapter the rating and reporting standards, for example, SASB, IIRC, GRI, TCFD, lots of abbreviations. Those obviously just to name a few. What is your advice to business leaders who are keen to measure their impact, but perhaps feel a little bit overwhelmed by the sheer number of the available standards? They have every right to feel overwhelmed is the first thing to say. There is a huge, huge number of standards. In the book, we, we talk about how there are literally thousands of mandatory and voluntary different frameworks, and each one of those often asks for hundreds of data points. So very, very quickly, this can become a tsunami of particularly unuseful information. And thus, uh, I guess the advice that I would offer to business leaders 
is start with the data that is most material to your business, i.e. what is most relevant and what can help you potentially make more money if you were to incorporate that information into your processes. So if there's data out there that just so happens to be sustainability-related data, that data can help you make better business and investment decisions, and that data is incredibly useful. And thus, when you go to your colleagues, when you go to your peers, and you ask to try and collect that data, you're going to face far fewer barriers than if you were asking for things that were sustainability-related, but not actually relevant directly to the business. So it's about aligning incentives. It's about aligning the nuances of sustainability with profitability. And by doing so and creating that win-win, if you will, I think that's the great starting point for a business leader. Now, there are many frameworks, of course, that aspire to produce those material data points. The one that is broadly speaking considered to be market leading is the, what you've mentioned previously, SASB, the Sustainable Accountant Standards Board. In recent times, that's been merged into an organization run by IFRS, which is one of the two large mainstream accounting bodies to create something called the ISSB to keep using all these wonderful acronyms. So not only have we got a really strong standard uh, in terms of helping us understand what is material and relevant to businesses, now that standard is integrated with, as I said, one of the major financial accounting standards, which is a wonderful situation to be in. It gives it a lot more heft, a lot more credibility, and a lot more potential for it to become the global baseline. So that's what I really would recommend. Start with data that is most material to your business. And if that statement is too vague, do take a look at the SASB slash ISSB work. Excellent. And for the standards aficionados out there, let me ask you a question. And I wonder if you dare to forecast which of those might come in from a statutory perspective. You've just mentioned ISSB being part of the IFRS Foundation, one of the two global accounting standards, the other one being GAAP, of course. Do you foresee lawmakers mandating these reporting standards to a certain extent? And then will organizations still be able to choose? Or what's your stance on that? I think we're heading in that direction. We've certainly seen that uh, the EU is obviously rolling out enhancements to their non-financial disclosures. So we're definitely moving towards legal standards, which is a good thing, because that's arguably the only way you resolve this multitude of different bodies that are out there. So I would say that the variants of SASB, I think, have a very good chance of becoming that global baseline. Perhaps where we're most advanced is actually on a single vertical, which is climate. And within climate, we have TCFD, which in various different jurisdictions is being adopted as a form, either as directly mandatory or having legislation being built upon it and then being made mandatory. So I think we are edging in that direction. We're not quite there yet. But that's certainly the path that we're walking. Now, chapter five talks about sustainable private markets. Let me quickly read out an excerpt from the chapter introduction here. Do all private market sub-asset classes embrace sustainability standards? Answer, no. Do all private market geographies do so? Answer, no. Do private market firms deploy adequate resources to fulfill sustainability standards? Answer, in most cases, no. Is it fair to say that private business is a wide west and completely off the accountability radar for sustainability? It's a great question. And when Simon and I created the Q&A format, which you just read out, we 
debated back and forth whether this was going to be a good idea. Because clearly what we're doing is we're taking complicated questions and we're answering them in a single word or a couple of words. Now, later in the chapters, we do, of course, go into more detail and acknowledge some of the nuances of these debates. But in our desire to try and create something that was digestible, that was clear, we, of course, have created something that is a reductionist by nature as well. So throughout the book, there is plenty of potential controversy if people would like to take the questions purely at face value. So if that is a short caveat, I'd love to dive into private markets because it's one of the areas that I think Simon and I were most excited about. And the reason why we're so positively excited about private markets is because most of the time when you're investing in private markets, you're adding additional capital to a company's balance sheet. So in the public markets, when you're trading shares on a stock exchange you know, and you buy or sell a security, that money doesn't go to the company, it, it goes to the investor from whom you're buying the shares. In the private markets, when you're investing in these companies or these funds that invest in companies, normally that is additional capital that goes directly to the companies in question. And those companies are operating in the real economy. They have wonderful products and services that are very sustainable, and your capital directly helps them grow. So more often than not, the private markets are a wonderful place to actually fulfill your desire to create real-world impact because of that capital dynamic. However, as per your question, they're not perfect. And in many ways, sustainability in private markets is some way behind or a pure timeline perspective compared to public markets. The public markets have been you know, practicing variants of sustainability for the last couple of decades. Data has been improving, et cetera. The process is becoming more complex and more credible. And thus, it's a lot more advanced than in private markets, where really it's only been in the last five to 10 years where we've seen the larger private market firms, the mainstream private market firms come into the space with force. So when we look across it, what we see is there really is still some room for development and quite a lot of divergence. To the first question that you read out about the different sub-asset classes being at different stages on the sustainability journey, it's absolutely true. In areas such as real estate, we're really quite advanced when it comes to sustainability. In other areas such as venture capital, often less so, and for quite so good reasons as well. Across geographies, we do see differences. Uh, European private market firms tend to be more at the forefront than their US or Asian counterparts on average. And we see very different setups in terms of how people are staffing their sustainability functions and capabilities. And in some cases, it's still a little bit of a side job for some people rather than a fully-fledged operation. So to sum this up, we are very, very positive about private markets from a sustainability perspective because they have so much potential to create real-world impact. But factually, where do they stand relative to the public market counterparts? They're simply just a little bit back on the curve of maturity. And that's really what's been evolving over the last few years. I do have one follow-up question. Do you feel that private markets should have similar disclosure standards around sustainability as public organizations? I believe they should have certain minimum baselines, but they probably don't need equivalent standards. When a company goes public, they essentially have their stock accessible to retail investors. A typical stock costs a few dollars or a few pounds, 
And thus, anyone can buy that and have a very small share in that company. And thus, if you're going to be exposing your company ownership to retail investors who typically are not the most sophisticated of investors, then you really need to make sure that your disclosure standards from everything from accounting to sustainability are of the absolute highest quality. When it comes to private market companies, by definition, the ownership is restricted and there is a different segment of investors who are, who are putting money into those companies. And therefore, you probably don't need the same level of disclosure that you would require otherwise for public companies. So yes, I do think it is helpful to have minimum levels of disclosure across the board, be these companies public or private. But I also think you know one can definitely overstretch companies by requesting more than what's perhaps needed. And that's normally a function of the types of investors who are investing in these institutions. Fair enough. James, what role do you envision now sustainable finance to play in the future? And the reason why I'm asking you this is I'm thinking about the recent greenwashing scandals, for example, financial institution in Germany or here in the UK were made taking down certain advertisements that they had claiming that their products were sustainable in a certain way. And I suppose the authorities that made them take it down didn't see it quite that way. So is there more scrutiny now? Is that a good thing? What's the future of sustainable finance? There's definitely more scrutiny now, and that's, that is a good thing. I think we need to also think about where have these problems originated from. And they've originated predominantly because of the growth, i.e. sustainable finance in its various forms has grown extremely rapidly over the last decade. And in doing so, unsurprisingly, there are mistakes that get made. Some of those are completely unintentional. Some of those are misunderstanding. Some of them may, of course, be intentional. But that is true of any industry that goes through rapid growth. It's not always going to be a perfect linear line. So I think we should acknowledge that these things are, of course, not optimal. But equally, we should celebrate the fact that they are a function of the great success that sustainable finance has had in recent times. And thus, when I look forward and I think about the future, my thoughts are that the importance of sustainable finance will only increase. And that's because, again, if we take a step away from terminology and go back to first principles, in some ways, all that sustainable finance is doing is making the intangible tangible. So that could be the impact an activity has on a community or on its employees or on the environment. And in the past, these costs and benefits were never explicit. They were intangible. So you could emit CO2, for example, and not have to pay for it. What sustainable finance is doing is helping us have a better understanding of the fully loaded or the true costs and benefits of any given activity. It's providing that additional information to help us as a society make better decisions. So by putting a price on carbon, by putting a price on the impact on the environment or the impact that companies are having on the communities or employees, we are incrementally getting ourselves to actually a more efficient place where we know what the costs and benefits are, we know what the full stack is, and thus we can make choices that are incrementally better. So I think when I look to the future, the role of sustainable finance absolutely only increasing And it's predominantly for that simple reason. It's making intangible things tangible, and that transparency helps us make better decisions. And I have a million other questions, but unfortunately, we're almost at time here. So do get the book, Sustainable Investing in Practice, and I'm sure 
most will be in there for people who are interested. As you know, James, we have two questions for all of our guests. So let me ask you, what is your favorite story of a particular leader or organization that had a big impact on yourself or society at large? So for me, it would be when I was back at UBS and Simon and I had a fantastic boss, a gentleman named Mark Halfley, the chief investment officer of UBS Wealth Management. And he gave us a really simple equation for real world impact or doing good, if you will. And that equation was intensity multiplied by scale. And it's a really important equation. It had quite a profound impact on us because much of the sustainable investing industry is drawn towards the intensity side of that equation. They want to create the perfect solution that does this huge amount of good and has no negative side effects whatsoever. And they will spend hours, if not days, designing intricate methodologies, spending on a huge amount of effort. And the end of it will normally be something that is extremely targeted, maybe very good, but extremely targeted. It's a bit like, you know, investing in your organic garden back home. It's wonderful. You've made some fantastic carrots, but the scale simply isn't there, if that makes sense. So what Mark really showed us was driving the intensity without thinking about scale doesn't actually lead to positive real world outcomes en masse. What you need to make sure is that you have scale. And thus with scale, of course, you can reach more people and do a lot more good. And that equation is therefore really powerful, which is you don't always need the perfect financial instrument that is you know, extremely impact intense without any side effects whatsoever. You need things that are on average and doing a lot more good than they are bad. And you need to do that activity time and time and time again in the biggest way possible. That's how all of us will have positive real-world impact. That's how we will change the trajectory on things such as climate change. It's by really thinking about that question, intensity multiplied by scale, and not getting lost in some of the uh, rabbit holes that can occur if you focus purely on the intensity space. And I was actually subscribed once to a newsletter from Mark Heffele. Really enjoyed that. So thanks very much for mentioning him. And can you give our listeners one piece of advice that they can make part of their leadership toolkit and start applying today to set them up for more positive societal impact? I think the advice that I would offer is that people should look to create win-wins whenever possible, because it's always tempting as an individual to focus on yourself, to focus on what you want to achieve, and then go on a crusade to get it. And if that's how you operate, you then have to convince everyone else to come with you and help you achieve what you want to achieve. And that's quite a challenging activity. It's far easier to listen to what other people want to do and consider if that action is beneficial to yourself. And thus, if it is beneficial, then you help them achieve what they're looking to do. And simultaneously, of course, you benefit yourself. And when you help, someone else achieve their objectives, it means that you don't have to convince them. They're already convinced that this is an activity that they want to put their time, money, and effort behind. And thus things move a lot faster. So for me, the advice that I say is really focus on other people, focus on these win-wins, and thus you can find very quickly that you can get to where you want to be and achieve the things you want to achieve 
the route might not be the route that you yourself would have designed with a blank sheet of paper, but you, A, you will get there, but otherwise you might not. And B, you're definitely moving awful lot faster. So that'd be the advice I'd offer. Win-win. Great ending to the episode. Sustainable Investing in Practice by Simon Smiles and James Purcell is available now. James, it was a great pleasure talking to you today. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership Conversations. To follow our work and learn more about our reports, please check out our website, boardreport.org, and sign up to our newsletter. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Details can be found in the podcast description. 